Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 22. You remember how last week I told you I hated exams and I was glad when my final exam I I had my got my final degree no more exams well you know what's worse than a written exam an oral exam and back in 1995 I went before Florida's, uh, Central Florida Presbytery for my ordination exam, and it's an oral exam, and I kiddingly told my friends about a year before this, R.C. Sproul was in our presbytery, in fact, he was my theology professor, and R.C. Sproul never went to presbytery, never, never was there, and so I told my friends, you watch, the day that I get ordained is the day that he'll show up to presbytery. And guess what? The day I got ordained was the day he walked in. So that even made it more stressful. So I studied intensely for six months prior to this day. You know, studied eschatology, soteriology, apologetics, church history, just to name a few things. And my brain was filled with theological and biblical knowledge. And when I stood before the presbytery, there was probably about 100 pastors there, plus R.C. Sproul, and my brain was ready to explode. Guess what the first question was? Um... I thought it would be something like, uh, what's your beliefs on paedo-communion? Or are you pre-mill, post-mill, you know, post-trib or pan-trib? It'll all pan out in the end, right? Guess what the question was? Who is Jesus? Well, I I sat there befuddled (laughs) for a few seconds probably felt like a, a minute, but who is Jesus? Really? Um, but, you know, thinking back on that, that was the perfect question. Who is Jesus? Because that's what the Gospel of John answers in every chapter, in every sermon. Who is Jesus? And as we saw last week, the multitudes that were fed by the miracle of Christ really didn't know who he was. But guess what? In fact, the disciples had many misconceptions of who Jesus was. Look at John 6.15. We'll start there. This is the word of God. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, 
withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now put yourself in the place of this crowd. They had just been fed this huge meal, right? All you can eat. It was a buffet. You know, all the fish, all the bread they wanted. They'd seen Jesus do something that God did at the very beginning of time. He created something out of nothing. Ex nihilo. There was not enough bread or fish to feed this crowd of 20 to 30,000 people. So this crowd sees this wonderful miracle and then they jump to the misconception of what the Messiah had come to do. One thing they knew, you know, they knew the Old Testament and they knew that the Messiah was to be king. Let's, let's look at a couple passages that show that. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7. Verses 12 through 16. It says this. And this is Nathan speaking to David. And it's God speaking through the prophet Nathan. It says, When your days are complete... And you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with a rod, and, and rod of men and strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Look at Psalm 2. Turn with me to Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9. This is a messianic psalm talking about Jesus being the king. It says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The above verses reveal that the Jews knew that this Messiah, the Messiah, would be the son of David and would reign as king and eventually reign over the entire earth. But there was a big misconception. They didn't know when his kingship would begin. And they thought, this crowd thought, it should begin that day. So they were ready to force him to become king. And they missed the entire aspect, they missed the entire aspect of Jesus being the suffering servant. They completely missed that. All they thought about was the conquering king. They didn't think about the suffering servant servant. Look at, uh, turn with me to Isaiah 53. Turn back 
towards the Old Testament in the prophets. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Now I want you to think about this. This uh, prophecy is written 700 years before Christ. 700 years before Christ. I remember I had a neighbor once in Florida. He was Jewish. And I went by and we were talking about the gospel and all that. And I, and I read to him Isaiah 53. And, and I was just dumbfounded that this man could read this and see this and not believe this was Jesus. I, I said, this is Jesus. He said, no, it isn't. It's Israel. I was like, unbelievable. Listen to this. It says, but he was pierced through. This is verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Then down in verse 6. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. And then in verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And then down in 11, But by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. This all speaks of Christ. And they totally, the Jews totally missed this. They totally missed this. Now remember what these guys had seen. Jesus fed thousands of people by this mighty miracle. They probably started thinking amongst themselves, we need this guy as our king. We, we need him as our king. Because then we'll have an abundance of food. We'll have an abundance of wine. We won't have sickness. We'll get rid of Rome's rule over us. We will have everything we need. All we need is him to be our king. You know, the crowd was in it basically for what they could get out of it. They were wanting bread for their stomachs and freedom from Rome. And you know, you look back on hindsight, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And you can see they were wrong. They were wrong, right? But many times, we have misconceptions about Jesus too, don't we? And we misunderstand issues concerning his kingdom. In fact, there are some Christians who are still waiting today for Jesus to become king. They're still waiting. They're still waiting. They're thinking that Jesus is going to become king at the end of the age. When he comes back. He's going to rapture the church. He's going to meet them in the air. Then he's going to come down to earth. And he's going to set up his kingdom. And he's going to rule for a thousand years. That's when they think Jesus will start his reign. But this type of thinking makes Christians, many Christians, kind of give up on the culture. We give up on the culture. You know, we, we sang a song just a minute ago um, that we want to win the nations with the gospel. 
We want to win our country back, right? We want to win our nation back. But with the mindset of, we're going to be beamed out of here any minute, that takes away from that, that desire to, to build the kingdom now. You know, we want to be an influence. We want to teach our kids to be an influence. You know, in the arts, in culture, in politics, in business, in all aspects of our culture, we want to teach our kids and our kids' kids that they can reach out to this nation with the gospel. But many times, because of our theology, our eschatology, our end-time view, it affects the way that we think about doing this. You know, the, the mindset is, why polish brass on a sinking ship? Now, two or three hundred years ago, our nation didn't think that way. The church didn't think that way. In fact, it was on the offensive. The church attacked the culture. And that's why the culture in America had a Christian worldview two or three hundred years ago. So how are we supposed to think? And how does, when does Christ reign? And how does his kingdom affect us? Well, turn with me real quick to Daniel chapter 7. And we'll look at that. Daniel 7. And let me do a quick commercial break. Um, I'll do a commercial break for David. Uh, Dan, David's going to be teaching Daniel. So I am just doing a quick overview here of the kingdom of God and, and Jesus as king. He's going to be teaching on this in the fall, right? So get, get to his class if you want to know more about this. Um, look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Most people, when they read this, they think that this is talking about the end times. They think that this is talking about Jesus coming back on a cloud. Okay? So they read this and they think, this is it. This is the end times. This is Jesus coming back on a cloud. Let me read that and let's look at it closely. Okay? It says this, I kept looking in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What is this talking about? Is this talking about Christ coming back and then setting up a thousand-year kingdom? No. L read it again. Look at verse 13. It says, One like the Son of Man was coming, and he came what? What's it say? Does it say down? Huh? What? Up. Okay. He's going up to the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father, Right? So here we have Jesus going up to the Ancient of Days, right? And what, when is this happening? This is the ascension. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension, and he ascends to the throne of God in which he reigns forever and ever. That's what it's talking about. That's what it's talking about. 
And what does that do for the kingdom on earth? Well, look at, turn with me to Matthew 13. We'll look at that real quick. Then we'll go back to John 6. Matthew 13, 31. says this, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in the field. And this is smaller than any other seed, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. What is this talking about? It's talking about the kingdom of God. In the first century, when, when Christ ascended to the throne and, and he rules over the earth, the kingdom started out small, right? And it grew larger and larger and larger until the end of the age. And that's what it's talking about. That's what the kingdom of God does. And so that's what we need to focus on in order to say we want to see God's kingdom grow. We want to train our kids to be a part of that, not to be looking to be beamed out of here, but to have an impact on our nation and on the world. Go back to John 6, 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Why did he do that? Why did he withdraw to the mountain to be alone? I, I think one thing might be the possibility of this was facing a temptation. Here's a temptation thrown at Jesus. All right? You can be king now. The people are ready to follow you. Right? You can be king now. You don't have to go to the cross. Take the easy route. You know? Do it now. Follow the people. You can have power, pleasure, and the people following you. And you, you can do it without the cross. And this is a great example for us to see no temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. That's what he did. He escaped to the mountain as an example for us that we need to do the same thing when we're facing temptations. You know what? Who else faced a temptation that day? Matthew 14 talks about the disciples were told to go get in a boat, right? Right after Jesus feeds the crowd, he tells the disciples, get in the boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. Matthew 14 tells us that. And then Jesus said, I'm going to go up in the mountain and pray. So he sends his disciples out in the Sea of Galilee. They had some of the same misconceptions that the crowd had. So they're probably getting into this boat going, why isn't he becoming king now? They were probably struggling, probably disillusioned. What's going on? Why isn't he doing it now? So those were some of the temptations that they could have been facing. And then, and then think about this. Jesus, after ministering, to thousands of people facing a hectic schedule, uh, people pressuring him from every direction, right? Um, he must have been just so pulled by people wanting him to do things for him, right? But what does he do? He goes to be with the Father, to spend time with the Father. Did he need to do that? Yes, he did. As the perfect 
as a part of the perfect life lived in our place, he needed to do that. He needed to live that perfect life for us in our place. But he also did it to have fellowship with the Father and as an example for us to follow. You know, many times when we're ministering to people, one of the constant things that we have, every one of us doing ministry in the church, we constantly have people pulling us in many different directions, wanting us to do things. And, and many times we end up trying to please people instead of please God. And we, gotta, we have to be very careful of when we're doing that. Because when we're pleasing people, we're not pleasing God. We might think we are, but we're not. Listen to what Psalm 23 says. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Notice that the text says that the Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. You know, sheep are fearful animals. You know, they won't lie down, you know, if they're fearful. Um, sheep won't lie down in green pastures if the shepherd's not there to protect them. In fact, they won't lie down in, with loud running water around them because they can't hear, and they can't hear if something's coming up behind them, you know, to eat them for lunch. So they need quietness, and they need to know that the shepherd's there to protect them. And so do we. So do we, don't we? And so when we do lie down, that's the time when the shepherd of our souls comes and restores us. In Matthew 14, we see that the disciples were sent away on the Sea of Galilee while Jesus went up to pray. Why would Jesus send his disciples into a storm that was coming? Now think about that. The disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee, right? They end up in a storm, and I'm sure at that point they'd say, why did Jesus send us here? And why did he not come with us? And why is he out praying and we're in this boat facing this storm? Do you think that may have been a temptation? I'm sure it was. And then you start wondering, um, we might die here and Jesus is not with us. Last time he was with us. He's not here now. What are we going to do? Um, you know, they're straining at the oars. That's what it said in, in Matthew 14. It says they were straining at the oars. And it said the waves were battering the hull of the boat. Battering it, testing it. And the, and the waves were battering and testing the faith of the disciples. And, and you can imagine um, the fear that they had. Wondering, where is Jesus? But you know what? Many times we do the same thing, don't we? When we start getting tested, when the waves of life start crashing in on us, what do we do? We start wondering, where is Jesus? You know, I don't feel like he's around. And why would he let me go through something like this? 
Um, why am I being tested? Does he really love me? Remember last week I said, um, um, count it all joy, my brethren, when encountering various trials, various trials. You know, you might be going through a trial that nobody in the church is going through right now. You may be the only one, you know? The disciples had everybody in the boat with them. They had all their buddies, right? But you maybe feel like you're the only person in the boat going through the trial. And that makes it doubly hard, doesn't it? And you start wondering, where is Jesus at this point? Notice in verse 17 it said, it had already become dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. In fact, guess how long he waited to come to them? It was probably about nine hours. Nine hours. Nine hours. A lot of times you wonder, why wait so long? If you love me, why are you waiting so long? The other gospels say that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. Who was he praying for, do you think? I think he's praying for his disciples. Because this was something that they were going through without him. And so he needed, they, he knows that they needed his prayers. Where do you think the leftover bread was? You ever think about that? Twelve baskets, remember, of leftover bread. Where do you think that was? I think it was in the boat. Can you imagine? They're straining at the oars, right? The waves are crashing all over the place. And, and the bread's sitting there right at their feet. They're smelling it. I, you know, a lot of times when we pull this off of here, the, the cover, whatever, blanket, whatever we call that, um, and every week when we do that, it just overpowers me, the smell of the wine. You know, it's, it, it affects all of our senses, right? Not just taste, but smell. And, and I was thinking about that with them in the boat, straining at the oars, and then they smell this bread, right? What would it make them do? It would, it would make them, it would remind them. What happened a few hours ago, guys? What happened a few hours ago? Jesus fed 20 to 30,000 people a few hours ago. Did they learn from that? Listen to what Mark 6, 51 and 52 says. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Listen to this. They were utterly astonished, right? And then it says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Is that unbelievable? So, they didn't learn anything from the loaves. That, that's kind of scary. To me, it's kind of scary. Um, these guys are all regenerate except for Judas, right? So they're all believers. They're all believers. 
but their, their heart is callous. Why is it callous? Why is it hardened? Why is it starting to be hardened? Because they're not thinking. They're not remembering. They're not thinking back. They're not meditating on what's been going on. They're just, you know, and, and it kind of reminds us, me of us. Me of me. <laughs> we are so busy in our society that we're just running from one thing to the next. Boom, boom, boom. And I bet you that's what they were doing too. Oh, let's feed 20,000 people. Okay, next. Right? And they, they didn't even think about what, what just took place. But guys, not even that. Listen to this. Um, turn with me to Matthew 8. There was another storm at sea in Matthew 8. Verse 23. It says this, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up, rebuked the wind and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him. They're still kind of wondering, who is this? Right? You know, you know it makes me think of the, the movie The Perfect Storm. The Perfect Storm. You all remember that movie? Uh, the wave at the end, uh, like 80-foot wave, and they're chugging up this wave, you know, going kind of straight up and can you imagine going straight up that wave and then all of a sudden jesus says boop and the whole thing drops would you ever forget that so you know we look at the disciples and think man how, how did they how did they not how did they not get this but guess what we do this all the time don't we don't we? I know I do. I, I remember back in seminary, get, uh, we, 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 we didn't have rent money. And Denise goes out to dinner, we go out to dinner with a, with a uh, uh, parent of a student, and the guy keeps saying, you know, if you ever have a need, you ever have a need, and you ever have a need, and we didn't say anything, but I'm like, we have a need. And finally, at the end of the dinner, he just runs across the street, goes to the, goes to the bank machine. I didn't know what he was doing. He comes back, and he shakes my hand and puts four or $500 in my hand. We didn't ask him for it. We didn't ask anybody for it. God just did it. And then, you know, six months later, I, there's other things that happen, and then you worry over something that six months before, God answered your prayers without you even asking. We do the same thing, don't we? We do the same thing. So why shouldn't the disciples have been afraid in John 6? Because they'd seen Jesus calm the storm. They'd seen Jesus feed 20,000 people. They knew that Jesus was praying for them. He was even watching over them from the mountain. 
What are some of your fears? What are the things that you worry about? What are some of your storms that you face? Is it cancer? Is it fearing what people think of you? Is it family problems with your kids or in your marriage? You know, one of the main things I think Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and trying to teach us is, you know, he was on the mountain, right? He was away from them. And he's trying to teach them, it doesn't matter if I'm away or I'm with you, because one day I'm going to always be with you, no matter what. No matter what you face, no matter what you're going through, I'm always going to be there. And guess what? My love for you will never fail. Even when you fail, my love for you will never fail. I will be there for you. Turn with me to Romans 8, and we'll close with that. Romans 8.31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. He will take you through the storm, and He will make you more like Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises in your word. That you will never leave us. That you will never forsake us. That you will never stop loving us. That you will even discipline us as your children. 
to correct our path because you love us so much. Lord, help us to respond to that love by loving obedience to you. Lord, we praise you for this day that we can come and worship you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you, Lord, that you reign now on your throne and are in control of everything. We praise you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.